0: from past experience, do all the adjustments of the podium before you start, so I'm just going to move slightly over, uh, I feel there's too much of a bias towards this side, people over here need here too, so just tilt this, actually I should have said while we were beginning, if you could turn please in your Bibles to to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, as Jonathan intimated, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke uh, over an extended period. So we've done about fourteen in our series on surprising salvation, and we've taken a break for a little while but are coming back to it now. Uh, so so beginning again, this series into Luke. And so Luke chapter nineteen, and it is a familiar story uh, for many, but let's let's read uh, together. Uh, we're going to read from uh, verse. 28 down to verse 44 of Luke chapter 19. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to him, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that as we read these words, yes, they're the words of Luke, but supremely they are the words of God himself through the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that as we open the Bible, It's not us that sit in judgment over it, but it really sifts us and helps us to know who we are and who God is and how we should respond. So Father, I ask that your Spirit will help us this morning to understand what it is that you would say to us and that we would rightly respond in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we resume our series In the Gospel of Luke, we're walking alongside Jesus as he finally reaches Jerusalem. And we're going to walk beside him through Judean villages, and we're going to walk among the crowds as he reaches the end of his ministry. After three years, Jesus is moving forwards, forwards towards his own death. It's always a good time to ask this question, but it's especially good now. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he a good man? Is he more than that? Is he he a social revolutionary establishing his uh, way of life? Or is he truly God's king bringing about God's kingdom? Jesus is certainly a man who is on the move. The road to Jerusalem began 10 chapters ago in in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, and he's resolute. That's where he's going to. And as he's moving from from Galilee, which is kind of in the north of the country, and he's, he's making his way down to Jerusalem over 10 chapters uh, he's going from place to place and as we as if you flick through the chapters you see that Jesus is teaching often in parables on the nature of of the kingdom of god the kingdom that he is bringing bringing about and he is giving his disciples and his followers and the people a vision of what the kingdom looks like and what membership of the kingdom is what what it means to belong to god's kingdom And he's talking about kingdom ethics. What do we mean by ethics? Well, we mean simply this. What is right and what is wrong? What is good and what is bad within God's kingdom? And he's talking about kingdom priorities. What is it that you should be doing in God's kingdom? What is it that matters? What is most important? And Jesus is saying through all of this, and these are the familiar stories, that it's the repentant tax collector who stands at the back and beats his chest humbly and says, Woe is me, a sinner, that is justified by God, not the arrogant Pharisee. It's about the return of lost things. It's it's it's, it's like finding the lost coin or, or finding your lost sheep. Or ultimately, it's about finding lost sons and daughters and heaven rejoicing that people are coming into God's kingdom. It's it's stories like the Samaritan who comes across the beaten up Jew and yet reaches somehow across that, that divide, that racial and, and, and ethnic and, and cultural divide. And he's the one that's the good neighbor towards that, that poor Jewish man that's been beaten up. That's what being a good neighbor in the kingdom of God looks like. And it's not easy. It's not easy to be a member. It's not easy to be a disciple. And Jesus knows this. And, and he spells it out for people that come to him. And people want to follow Jesus. And he says, come follow me. But, but, but the foxes, they have holes. And, and the birds that are, are flying in the sky, they have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? Well, well you have to hate your family. And Jesus used those words. You have to hate your family. You have to hate your own life. You have to lose yourself to be my disciple. In fact, you have to pick up your cross to follow me. Jesus knows about his kingdom. And he knows that it's a kingdom of repentant sinners and outcasts. And the kingdom at this point is it, it, it's, its no bigger than a mustard seed. The upside down nature of the kingdom, it continues as he, as he leads his followers towards Jeru- Jerusalem to witness his death. And it's easy for us because we know the whole story. But for those disciples to be following Jesus as king to his death was, was an impossibility that they just could not grasp. Many times during his journey, Jesus tells them of his death. The most recent one is is chapter 18 and verse 31. If you want to look back at those verses, chapter 18, page 1052. Jesus takes the twelve aside and he tells them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. This is very specific. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. And the disciples who were following Jesus, their king, did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about You see, in the disciples' world, messianic kings go to Jerusalem to receive a crown, not to be nailed to a cross. We join Jesus for the last few miles of his journey in chapter 19.
1: Jerusalem,
0: the city of kings, has come into view, verse 28 And we're approaching Jerusalem, so we've come down through Galilee, we've come down kind of the eastern side of of the Jordan River, and we've crossed over, we've come through Jericho, just just a little bit beforehand, where we met Zacchaeus, again an unlikely convert to Jesus' kingdom, this hated tax collector. And as we're approaching from the east, we're just a few miles from Jerusalem, and we have the, the town of Bethany. And that's the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the town we're maybe familiar with. But it's flooded because we're joining up with thousands upon thousands of pilgrims that are also heading towards the city for the biggest festival of the year, the big event, the time when lambs in their tens and even hundreds of thousands, by some estimates two hundred thousand lambs are sacrificed during Passover is a reminder of God's deliverance from judgment during the Exodus. We have men, we have women, we have children, we have babies, we have married, we have single, we have animals. Everyone is simply on the move heading to Jerusalem. And some will have been planning this all year, and others are the ones being dragged along. You know, come on, it's the family tradition, don't disgrace me, you have to come to Jerusalem. But everyone is on the move. And so we come to to verse 29. Jesus approaches Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. And he sends two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked, them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. By one person's estimate, Jesus travelled at least three thousand miles during during his three year ministry. So about you know, it's a fair distance. Over that whole time, not once do we read in any of the Gospels a mention of a donkey or a colt or a horse or any other kind of animal or any other kind of transport for Jesus. Not once. Maybe you're not curious, but I'm curious. Why, coming to the end of his ministry and his life, with Jerusalem in sight, we're only talking now a matter of miles, why is Jesus looking for a colt? Why is he looking for an animal? Why does newfound insistence by jesus on requisitioning things for his use well i think in some way jesus is revealing his kingly authority you two you two go fetch me an animal for my use if anyone asks you it's for the lord that's all you need to say it's for the lord you shouldn't have any problems Well, see, these are the the actions and the commands of someone who's in authority, isn't it? Someone who can make demands. It's a king. It's someone who's in charge. Who then is this Jesus, the question we started with? Well, a king that gives orders. A king who can tell people what to do. I know that you don't like to be told what to do because I don't like to be told what to do. And that's quite common for people everywhere, all the time. But it should be our comfort to know that Jesus gives orders. Jesus says, children, obey your, your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's a comfort. It's a comforting command, as any parent here will assure you, that it's a comforting command to know that this is what Jesus asks of children. Especially at well, today it would have been at about quarter past four, but usually quarter to eleven, when your child is flailing around on the ground, crying, demanding, expecting, wanting to be the attention, because child number two across the room looked at them the wrong way. It's a comfort then, isn't it, to know that Jesus says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right. It's a comfort to know that Jesus gives good commands in his kingdom so that we can live well. But there are uncomfortable commands. And yet, even from the uncomfortable commands, we too should take comfort. Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman, or indeed a man, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with them in their heart. Jesus the King says, stop searching for porn on your computer. Jesus the King expects us to tell others to do likewise. It's sometimes an uncomfortable comfort to know that Jesus the King can give orders. Now, if Jesus were just the king who gives orders from his throne, we might begin to feel at least defensive, if not resentful. Even if those orders were for our good and for our protection. And we instinctively know, don't we, that each command that Jesus gives is that, isn't it? It's for our good and protection. We know that. It's something we kick against, but we know it. And we may simply feel like a ruled and suppressed people if it was just the king from the throne giving those orders. So we need this afternoon to know another truth. It's not just a king that gives orders. We need to know that Jesus is a king that chooses to ride a donkey. Now why, why is that significant? Well, it's quite an irony really, isn't it? Jesus, three years, no mode of transport apart from walking, as far as we know. He begins to exercise some of his kingly authority as he's coming to Jerusalem. Back straight, chest out, tummy in, calling for provisions. And yet the most he can stretch to is to ask for a donkey for the last few miles of a three-year journey. Even the fact that the colt is dutifully found, it's untied, it's fetched, it's brought, all exactly how Jesus said it would be, I think we're still wondering if if these are truly the actions of a king who is all-powerful and a king that's in control. Because, let's be honest, a colt isn't the most kingly form of transportation. Low to the ground, not a huge amount of power or speed. In fact, it's an animal you might get at a fairground that you'd put a child on and take him around a few times, isn't it? But this king, King Jesus, is not following the world's script for how kings behave and how kingdoms are formed. Where the world would come riding on a war horse, Jesus turns to the script of the Old Testament and he follows the words of his father. And Jonathan read read the verses for us before, but I think it's worth turning to again. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9. It's on page 955. Zechariah, looking forward to Jesus' coming, says the following. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, daughter of Zion. And Zion is a hill within Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, this king, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The arrival of... Of God's kingdom on earth is the most monumental event in all of our history, all of human history. We can, we can conceive or think back of the greatest coronations of the greatest kings. We can think of the greatest military victories and the parades that happened after those military victories that this world has offered. And none of them are more momentous and impacting than the coming of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. It is simply the greatest coming, the greatest event, the greatest coronation, the greatest victory in all of history. Yet, this kingdom, that's going to ultimately crush all other kingdoms, it came quietly in the backwater town of Bethlehem and was welcomed by lowly shepherds on that starry night as they went to a manger. It's a kingdom that 30 years later is marching to the slow plod of a colt over a dusty few miles. You see, we need this king, a king who perfectly follows the script of his heavenly father, not a king that's coming to establish a kingdom for himself or on his own basis or for his own glory we need a ruler yes who by his own authority can call out each of the stars to come out and to fill the heavens he can call them by name he has that authority and power but we need that same person who coming up to his crucifixion in submission says father not my will but yours be done and Zechariah saw the king that we need all those years beforehand by the Spirit. And he wrote with the prophetic eye that we, we need a king, yes, one that will bring peace, but one who is humble and mounted on a donkey. Most expectant Jews couldn't couldn't understand this idea of a humble king coming like this. And if we were there, we, we wouldn't understand this. Uh, we have hindsight, but l- let's be honest. We, we wouldn't have understood this or expected this. If we look back earlier in, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 11, while we were listening to this, this is Jesus uh, bringing Zacchaeus to faith. Jesus went on to tell them a parable. And we're not going to go into the parable. It's It's very instructive, by the way, but this is the key thing. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to come or to appear all at once. So Jesus is working to a timescale that sees the kingdom coming in seed form. That's the timescale and the priorities of Jesus, that, that the kingdom is coming now in seed form, and it's only going to be revealed in stages. You see, I don't know if you've thought about this, if Jesus and his kingdom was revealed all at once and Jesus came conquering his enemies like the disciples expected him to do, then none of us or none of them would have had any hope. We would just be the conquered ones. We would be swept aside by Jesus' righteous judgment and he would come and Jesus would sit on his throne And he would issue the orders and it would be our dutiful obedience to obey, but it would be from a hardened, sinful heart. You see, Jesus, the King that's revealed in the pages of Scripture, as he's prophesied in the Old Testament, as as those promises are fulfilled in the New Testament, he is far, far, far greater than the Jesus that we think we want. And he's far, far greater than the Jesus that we often hear presented by people. Some say that Jesus is simply the king to be obeyed. He's full of majesty, justice and judgment. He demands and deserves your obedience. And sometimes others might speak of a Jesus that is full of meekness and grace and humility and patience, coming in peace and service. The truth is we need all of those things to be true about Jesus all of the time. We we, we can't divide Jesus. We can't pick and choose and say, this is who Jesus is, and this is who Jesus is, and keep them apart. He is the king who gives orders, but the order is to go and fetch a donkey. You see, it's, it's perfect power and perfect humility brought together. He, he is Lord and servant. He's the one who offers his kingship in service to others. The king who lays down his life for his followers is the king that you and I as sinners desperately, desperately need. And then he is also the king that we can follow out of heartfelt joy, not a dutiful fear. His band of followers, thankfully, in, in Luke 19, aren't put off by the less than kingly transport that a, that a cult makes. As the crowds begin uh, going up to the festival and it's surging through those narrow village streets in Judea, the crowd is surging through Bethany, through Bethpage, uh, coming up to the Mount of Olives, which, which, which as you start to come down the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem comes into view right across the the valley, the Kidron Valley, and there you have the temple on the eastern side of the city. So as you're coming down the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem and the temple come into view. And his followers are laying their cloaks on the road to form a royal welcome carpet. Look back from verse 36. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, He wept over it. As we walk with the crowds, we too are overtaken. And we proclaim that this is indeed God's King, God's promised one. He is to be blessed. The King, verse 38, who comes in the name of the Lord. And at this point, we unknowingly, I think, pick up the words that were sung 30 years ago by the angels, words of peace and glory to announce Jesus' birth, to the lowly shepherds. And now, near the time of his death, it's almost like things are coming full circle. And those same words are heard again, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. For the disciples, the kingdom of heaven is is almost decisively breaking through and and they don't need to contain it anymore. They can see Jesus riding to Jerusalem. They, They are putting their cloaks out for him. Other passages and descriptions talk about palm branches being waved and, and jubilation and, and, and calling Jesus the new David. Hosanna. Peace is upon us. Glory will extend to the highest levels. This is the king we want. The king we need. The king worthy of praise. The king of mighty works. Verse 37. And we're there and we can almost taste the culmination of three years of faithful following. The disciples are coming with their king to Jerusalem to crown God's anointed one and usher in the never-ending kingdom of God. Just to say, Jesus is indeed praiseworthy. As we read these verses, we're not to be cynical about them or to, to take away from what's happening here. Jesus is praiseworthy. Everything about the disciples' words, And desires and their praise and everything they say is good and proper and true. Yes, we wonder if they are praising Him for the kind of King they want Jesus to be. Or are they praising Him for the kind of King that they need Jesus to be? Do you know what I mean? Is it, is it King Jesus? the powerful miracle worker alone? Or is it King Jesus, the miracle worker, who is also the greatest and final Passover lamb? Is it the Jesus they want or the Jesus they need? And with the disciples, who they want Jesus to be and who they need Jesus to be, we know there's often a struggle there. We know the story. Soon Jesus will be dead. And all of the pent-up expectations from the three years of following Jesus, it's going to all come out, isn't it? They saw Jesus as the messianic king who was coming to Jerusalem to be crowned, to restore the, the nation, to restore Israel, to make it great again, to, 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 to do that by, by removing the Romans, preferably with a bit of humiliation for, for this great empire. And when he appears to do neither in their eyes, one of them is going to betray Jesus with a kiss. All of them are going to flee and run away. His closest and most loyal follower is going to deny having ever known him. What are your pent-up expectations for following Jesus. We've talked about the disciples. Do we think we're better? Do we think we're different? What are your expectations? Maybe you've put in more than three years of following Jesus, and you have a set of expectations about how King Jesus is to rule. Maybe it's a struggle in your job. It's cutting you down. Each day you go in, it's it's just cutting a little bit of your soul away from you each and every day. Jesus is king. I am his royal daughter or his royal son. Surely Jesus from his throne sees my good works and I pray that he is a faithful Lord and I pray believing that he will grant me the desires of my heart and my situation will change and that Jesus will give me and grant me a new job. But well, you've struggled with the idea of being single and would really love to be married and have a faithful and godly partner. Surely God has plans for me that include the best possible husband or the best possible wife. Then, like the disciples, I can be there praising him for his miracles in my life. Jesus will give me a spouse. Timothy Keller, pastor and author, writes the following, which I think is helpful. If your agenda is the end, Jesus is just the means. You're using him. But if Jesus is the king, you cannot make him a means to your end. You can't come to a king negotiating. We need to remember, Jesus is the king we need, not always the king we want. A new job or a spouse or a faithful husband or a faithful wife in our marriages, those things are not ultimate. Jesus is the king, not them. However, this is truly good news. He is the king that goes to the cross in your place. He is the humble king who is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey for your sake. You are not submitting to Jesus out of fear beneath his throne alone. You are submitting to him also out of love beneath his cross. You see, we can trust and we can worship someone who gives themselves utterly and completely for us. How could you not trust someone like Jesus when they give everything for you? You see our ultimate needs are, are not about jobs they're not It's not ultimately about marriage or, or recognition from others. Our ultimate need is to have our sins forgiven. And when we die, to be welcomed into God's presence and rescued from eternal punishment. That's our need. Our true need met by our true King. And then it frees us. It frees us to serve others. It frees us to follow Him. It frees us to trust Him and to enjoy his good gifts, which come in his time. Briefly and finally, one last portrait of King Jesus from verse uh, 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Verse 39, the Pharisees, I think they echo the words of the skeptic or the words of the unbeliever, or the disbeliever. They, they they see this noise and this, this commotion all centered around Jesus and they want to contain the noise and they want to keep themselves and others from having to deal with the idea of Jesus as king. They, 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 they've kind of lost control at this point and they know they can't do it so they ask Jesus to do it. And we may find ourselves wanting to keep Jesus at arm's length this afternoon. You see, private and and moderate worship is fine. Keep it keep it to yourself. But but say that Jesus is the King that I need to obey in my life okay, bit of distance. (laughs) Stand back. But the praise of Jesus won't be silenced. Jesus says, if it's not the disciples, then the stones are going to have to cry out. The, 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 the rocks on the ground will have to sing. You see, as believers, we've been changed by what we've seen. It's more beauty than the world has known. And we cannot and should not be silenced or silent in our praise of him as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus. If we've seen that beauty, is he not praiseworthy? And as he rides those final few meters towards Jerusalem, as he's coming down the Mount of Olives and and the city comes into view, Jesus' heart breaks. And we can say that because this is the strongest possible word in the Greek language for crying. This isn't crocodile tears. This isn't just a, oh, this is sad. This is weeping, bitter weeping as Jesus sees Jerusalem. Because Jesus longed to gather the people As a mother hen gathers her chicks. And he knows, as a prophet, as Jesus, as God's son, that in less than 40 years the Romans will besiege the city AD 69, AD 70. They will ransack it. They will build embankments. They will encircle it. They will come in and ransack it and destroy Jerusalem. The temple will be utterly annihilated and it hasn't been rebuilt since. With the loss, I think this thing we forget, with the loss of over one million lives. Over one million lives are going to be lost in this city within a generation. The Jews would greet each other and still do today with, with the words Shalom. Peace. And Jesus comes now offering peace, but knows that peace will not be found. A day of salvation, verse 32, has come, but is somehow hidden from the majority in that city. So if you feel a stirring in your heart this morning, as you see the people of God praising Jesus, and you see Jesus being lifted up as the one who can save you from your sin, Listen to that stirring. Listen to that call and turn in repentance to Him today. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. The good news of Jesus is on offer today. But if you leave today, then very soon, you will be shouting out, Quiet! Quiet! Keep keep it down! I don't want to hear any more about Jesus the King. Your heart will harden, and the truth will become impossible to see. Do not harden. Do not call out for quiet. Do not turn your eyes away. Rather, today is the day to turn to Jesus, the King on a donkey. We can choose, like the Pharisees, to try and silence the worship of Jesus. We can seek to deny all kinds of truths about him, all the claims he made about being the Son of God. We can attack the authority of the Bible and say it's all made up. We can dismiss all the claims rationally. But these verses warn us that peace will leave us and destruction will come. His first arrival in Jerusalem was by donkey, and that's for a good reason. But Revelation, the final book of the Bible, tells us that his second and final rival is going to be on a war horse, a white war horse. We have the story in our hands from beginning to end. We have it complete. We know how it's going to end. Will you, this day, take up the offer of rescue from the king on the donkey who is going to the cross. God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Jesus weeps. His plea to you is through these deep tears to come to him. Just one final application or thought. For those that already follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you are there with the crowds praising him, do you sense with Jesus the urgency of saying that today is the day of peace? Our tears are often reserved for our own situations. Our own expectations of King Jesus are the things we cry over. We carry our pent-up demands for Jesus the King after our years of following Him. But Jesus has no tears for His own cross. He only has tears for the sinners who are facing destruction. Pray, pray, And weep and continue to hold out the offer of peace to your friends and your family who apart from Jesus are facing destruction. We need a great King. We have and worship a great King. Let us serve a great King. Amen.